this topic is really is it an amalgamation of a, of a lot of things that I've been working on for a while. I think it's of particular intrigue in this week's parsha because we meet Asav, and Asav is behaving very strangely, especially in line uh, or in light of the very first source. We have a source here. Source number one is a source that we've seen previously. And the source tells us that a child does not receive a Yetzirah, an evil inclination, until they're born. So you have the entire duration of pregnancy, gestation, and the child does not have a Yetzirah. The Gemara tells us, the Gemara Sanhedrin, that Antoninus and Rebbe had an argument. When does the child get a Yetzirah? Does it, is it from the time of Yitzir, which means the formation of the child, the embryo? Or is it from Mishas Yitzir, when the child leaves and comes and joins the world? So initially, Rabbi Judah the Prince said, from Yitzirah, from formation. The Roman responded, it says, no, if a child had a Yitzirah in utero, they would kick their mom, and they would come and commit suicide, essentially. So it must be, it's from birth. And indeed, Rabbi Judah the Prince agrees and he says that this law, this lesson, this insight I learned from Antoninus, that a child gets a Yetzirah at birth, and he also supports it, he bolsters it with a verse, with a, with a verse in Genesis. The, the verse tells us, chatas rovets, at the entrance, sin crouches, at the entrance of someone's, of someone's life, i.e. at birth, sin is ready to pounce because of the Yetzirah. That's the background to the discussion. So for the entire duration of someone's stint in utero, in gestation, there's no Yetzirah, there's no inclination. And indeed, the Gemara tells us that a child before they're born knows all of Torah. If you know, if you have no evil inclination, you know all of Torah. Child has prophecy. Child has a candle lit above, uh, perched the top of his head. All that is a result of not having Yetzirah. As he's born, forgets all of it because they have Yetzirah. That's the background to the discussion. There's two sources that are in conflict with this idea, or appear, appear, appear to be in conflict. Uh, source number two is in the Gemara in Yuma. And the Gemara is talking about what happens if a, if a pregnant mother, she has a craving on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, you have to fast. If you're pregnant, you have to fast as well. But if someone is at risk of dying or losing the baby or whatever, then they don't fast. But what happens? A pregnant woman, it's Yom Kippur, she has to fast, but she has a craving. We know when a pregnant woman has a craving that's not met, she doesn't address the needs of the, of the craving, of the baby, so to speak. It's a danger to the mom and to the baby. So what do you do? So the Gemara says what you do is you whisper into the ear of the mother and you say, today's Yom Kippur. And you, so to speak, remind the fetus that it's Yom Kippur. So the Gemara tells us there was once a, an instance that Asul Kameh de Rebbe, they came in front of Rebbe, Rebbe Judah the Prince, and they said to him, uh, we have a pregnant woman who wants to, he wants to, she has a craving. Whisper into, into her ear, it's Yom Kippur. They whispered into her ear, and she calmed down. The craving subsided, and Rabbi Judah the Prince is so excited, and he declares, Before someone is fully formed, I already know that they're righteous. And indeed, who was that baby that was eventually born? That's Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan was one of the great rabbis of the, of the next era of the Amorim. Another story, the, there was another child, another pregnant mother named Kippur who had a craving. They came in front of Rabbi Hanina, and they did the same thing. They whispered. This time the child refused to stop the craving, and the rabbi declared, Zuru Rishayim Rechem, that even in a, in a Rechem, even in utero, there's Rishayim, there's evil people, and a famous Shabtai Atzer Peri, who was a famous thief, 
who used to uh, who used to uh, molest the passerby at, at a at a uh, crossroads, he was that child. So here, what seems from this Gemara is that even before a child is born, before they have a Yetzirah, evil clinician, it's possible for them to go either a path of righteousness or a path of wickedness. And the question is how? If you have no Yetzirah, if, no, if, you, if you're no force that motivates you to sin, how could you have the... You're just a soul. The soul has Torah, the soul has prophecy. The soul is, is untainted. How could there be any grounds for sin? That's the question. And in our parsha, we see the same theme. And this is the next source. The Gemara, the, the verse tells us, Yaakov and Esav, Jacob and Esau are in utero, and they're fighting, they're struggling. And Rashi tells us why. Whenever they passed a yeshiva, a house of Torah study, Jacob starts pining to leave. He wants to leave. He wants to go study. When they passed the house, when Rebecca would pass the house of idolatry, Esau would get up and try to struggle to leave. He wanted to go do the idolatry. And, of course, eventually she went to the prophet. The prophet says there's two people, there's two nations, and two very different nations. That, then we know the rest of the story. That's the Suits Parsha. But again, we see Esav is trying to go do idolatry. Wait a minute. How can you do idolatry without a Yetzirah, out the evil inclination? You have, only, you have evil inclination only at birth. Before birth, you don't have it. So how is it possible? What is possible, the possible motivating factors for the child, for Esav and those two children in the Gemara Yuma to go try to sin. That's the question. Sources, a lot of sources talk about this. A Maharal, Maharal is the Titanic Torah scholar of the 15th, I'm sorry, 16th century. And he writes a very cryptic idea that people can be tzaddikim or rishayim, they can be righteous or wicked, even outside the boundaries of Yetzirah and Yetzirah of good and evil inclination. That's what he says. And I saw it uh, briefly on Matzah Shabbos, after Shabbos, and that's basically what he says, that there is essential righteousness and wickedness outside of the uh, of the boundaries and jurisdiction of the Yetzirah. It's a little bit unsatisfactory. The answer doesn't, doesn't really, doesn't, doesn't like really address, like there's still a problem. How is there sin without the Yetzirah? If there's no Yetzirah, you have a perfectly healthy, pure, and untainted, and unmolested, unsullied soul. That's all the child is comprised of. What, uh, how is there at all a grounds for, for sin or idolatry? Okay, so let's go back to the child in utero. We saw a lot of sources. Child knows all Torah. He's able to have prophecy. It seems like ostensibly that the child is perfect before he has Yetzirah. The Yetzirah comes and messes it all up. That's what I thought until now. Yetzirah is uh, that the, the child in utero is just a soul. There's nothing at all propelling him towards evil. At birth, he has a Yetzirah, and now sin is now a possibility. That's That was our working hypothesis. It turns out I was wrong. How about an amazing source here? It says something remarkable. I want to go through this, because here the, the, this is a Midrash in, in Pikude, and the Midrash is describing what happens to a child before conception. And it says that First thing, the Almighty takes a drop, i.e. the primordial biological matter, and declares upon it if the, this child will be strong or weak, intelligent or not so bright, wealthy or poor. That's already predetermined, but not Tzadik or Russia. And then, the, it's just a physical, right? It's just a physical drop of biological matter. It doesn't have a soul yet, but there's no conception yet. 
and the Almighty goes to the angel who is in charge of souls. All the souls already exist before creation, before from the six days of creation. And the Almighty tells the angel, there's a specific soul, and he names the soul, and what it looks like, bring him to me. So the angel goes, and he goes and finds the box, and he extracts the soul out of the box, and brings it before God, and right when the uh, when the ruach, when the soul comes in front of God, he bows down before God, the king of all kings, the holy one, blessed is he. The Almighty tells the soul, go into this drop. I emerge with this physical entity that's in the hands of the other angel. And the soul starts to complain. What does the soul say? Ribono Shalola, master of the world, it's enough. I'm happy. I'm perfectly content in the world that you placed me since you created me. Why should you, why, why do you want to put me into this putrid drop? Because I am holy and pure. And I'm created out of this holy entity. What does the Almighty tell him? The Almighty tells the, the, the Neshama, the world that I'm putting you in is even better. I'm putting you in a better, I'm improving your situation. You're going to a better world. You like the world that you're in now, but there's a better world for you. And when I created you, I only created you with intention of putting you in to this drop. Right away, the Almighty puts, forces the soul into the drop against his will. So even though the Almighty argues to the soul and says, it's a better world, and that's the reason why I created you, still the angels, the, the soul is kicking and streaming, and he has to be forced in against his will to be merged with the physical. And the angel comes and drops it into the mother's belly. Further, the angel, uh, the Almighty arranges that there's two angels that guard him, that he shouldn't leave, and he shouldn't be miscarried. means the soul is kicking and streaming, but the mind forces it into the body, or whatever the body is comprised of then. And even once he's there, the soul is trying to escape, and the Almighty has to position two angels to guard it from escaping. That's what the Midrash tells us. And when he's there, they have the candle on his head, etc., like we saw earlier, and he sees him from one end of the world to the other. And then the Midrash describes an amazing revelation the child has. The angel takes him and brings him to Gan Eden, to the Garden of Eden, to paradise. And he shows them the tzaddikim who are experiencing the greatest spiritual pleasure. And the angel tells this soul, do you know who these people are that are having this tremendous pleasure? No, how am I supposed to know this is the soul? So the, so the, the, the angel responds, the people that you see, they were exactly like you. They too were formed in the mother's stomach, and they went in the world and they observed Torah and observed mitzvot, and therefore they merited to have this reward. You should know. You're going to go into the world, and then you're going to live in the world, and if you merit to observe the Torah, you too will join this select fraternity. That's what he, he takes them on the little walk to, uh, to paradise. But if you don't, if you don't observe Torah, and if you don't observe the mitzvot, 
I'm going to show you another place where other souls are harbored. That's what he does in the morning. It's the morning, uh, the morning uh, trip, the tour that he gets in the morning. In the evening, the angel takes the soul and brings them to Gehenim. And he shows them, he shows them they're the wicked people. And the angels, the Malachi uh, Chabola, the persecuting angels, are taking these sticks of fire and hitting these people. And these people are crying, oh, woe to me, stop. And there's absolutely no mercy in them. And again, the angel tells that soul, do you know who these people are? And he says, no, I don't know. And then he just says, you know, these people were being burned. They were also exactly like you. And they went into the world and they did not observe the Torah. And they did not observe the laws of God. And therefore, they have to suffer in this manner that you see. And you should know. You two are going to go in the world. Tehei tzaddik, be a tzaddik, and get the merit of the tzaddikim. Don't be a rasha. And you too will live for olam abba. That's what the child experiences. The Midrash concludes, Ve'eno wrote lots of nisham. At childbirth, the child still does not want to leave until the angel has to hit him again. And that candle that was lit on his head is extinguished. And he goes into the world against his will. And he forgets everything that he saw. And the Midrash concludes, why does a child cry at birth? He cries because of the stature that he lost and the world that he left. That's the Midrash, or at least the relevant parts to us. So what I found here, very interestingly, we were working with the assumption that a child, before they have a Yetzirah, before birth, they're a perfect soul. The soul is happy. The soul is delighted. Clearly, even... Before conception, once the soul has to be brought together with any physicality, he's already complaining. There are some elements of his purity that's already being compromised way before then. What's more, if you actually examine what's going on over here, it turns out there's actually three distinct disappointments and resistances from the soul. When the soul finds out that he's going to be merged with this drop, what does he say? He says two things. I'm happy in the world that you created me, i.e. the next world, the spiritual world. Now you're bringing me into a different world, into the physical world. The soul is happy in Olam in the spiritual world, and does not want at all to be in, in the physical world. He res- resists additionally he resists being bound to the physical, not just the physical world, but the physical entity, the physical identity. Whereas the soul was the only, it was just, it was just a soul. Now it's going to have to contend with the body, and the body is going to be fighting for having some sort of identity. And what does the Almighty respond? The Almighty responds to both claims. First of all, he says, the world that I'm putting you in, you're unhappy with the world you're leaving. You don't want to go to the, the new world. The Mighty says to him, It's a better world, number one. And number two, he says, when I created you, I created you to be bound with this physical entity. Those are the first two. First, first time he's complaining he doesn't want to leave the next world. Number two, he doesn't want to be bound to a physical entity. And lastly, he starts crying at birth 
because of the third demotion, the third degradation of his soul, because now there's the Yetzirah. But what's interesting is that if you actually break it down, the child's told, be a tzaddik and don't be a Russian. We already saw last time, two times ago, that to be a tzaddik means to preserve the purity of the soul. If the soul's purity is being compromised in three different areas, we can safely say that to preserve the purity of the soul would also likewise be in three different areas. Perhaps we could say it this way. The, the soul wants to be in the, in the spiritual world, but it's in the physical world, right? It's here with us. There's souls here with us. It's in everybody. There's a soul. It's in the physical world. And there's tension. There's conflict between physical and spiritual world. That's one conflict we have. Our identity, we have a conflict of identity. Are we a body or are we a soul? Well, we're both. But which one are we going to favor? Which one are we going to lean towards? And lastly, when the child is born, there's a Yetzirah. There's an evil inclination foisted upon it. Therefore, there's a third conflict, because like the Gemara says, that a Yetzirah is a foreign god. If you isolated the, the soul, what happens when it encountered God? It started bowing down. The soul, in its essentially in itself, without the Yetzirah, totally accepts the dominion of God. But now it's introduced to a conflicting entity, which is the foreign God, which is in direct opposition. So we have a third conflict with the foreign God. Which which God is our God? Is it is it the Almighty, the the God so to speak of our soul, the God of our body, the God of the physical world, the Yetzirah? Thus, just to to, to try to answer our question before we draw conclusions. Indeed, a perfect soul would not sin at all. And the soul's biggest imperfection happens at birth, with the advent of the Yetzirah. But even before birth, even in utero, there is limiting factors on the soul. The soul's miserable there, it wants to jump out, and there has to be angels to force it in. Why? Because it's not a perfect soul. It's got a physical entity. It's now couched in a physical entity in the, in the body, whatever primitive body there is over there. And it's in the physical world. Both of those are deducting from the spiritual power and soul focus of the soul, which is, ought to be spirituality. So to say that a child in utero is the, is the biggest tzaddik in the world, it's not true. A biggest tzaddik in the world or the purest soul in the world would look like a soul that has not yet left the spiritual world and has not yet been bound to another counter force i.e. the body. And I want to say even further, Esav, he wanted to do idolatry. What's idolatry? We think of idolatry as uh, a disavowal of spirituality, as a rejection of spirituality. The truth is that historically, idolatry was actually a, a fusion of physical and spiritual. They took God and they made God into a physical representation, so to speak. Which, of course, is anathema to us. But it's not a rejection of God. It's more like a misrepresentation of God. And, of course, that could go very far away from where it was originally intended. Like, the Ramadan describes that the initially they've looked at the moon and the stars as being proxies. You want to serve God? We'll serve God's great creations. And that will be a way to show honor. Just like a king wants to honor his servants. So it's very likely that the idolaters that Esau was trying to trying to escape towards were not idolaters that rejected God entirely, 
but were idolatry where it, it was a slight problem, so to speak, but not a total disavowal of God. And indeed, that's very much in line with who he is now. He's he has the the soul, which is from the spiritual world, but he has the body from the physical world. He has the identity, the crisis of identity, where on one hand he's body, one hand he's soul, and indeed it's it's natural. At least the framework of the answer is is there, of him desi- being desirous of physicality, even without a yitzurah. There is already that element of pining for sin already in place. Now, okay, how does it explain? I, I don't know. But we ask the question, technically, how, what is, there's no hardware trying to motivate Esau to sin. Well, now we see there is. The body and the physical world are both elements that limit the soul, and therefore, both potentially, at least, there, there is some room, some grounds for us to say, framework, if you will, where this could have actually happened even outside of the Yetzirah. But I want to, I want to try to draw for the, from this, Conclusions for us. Because if our goal is to become a tzaddik, like we saw over here, like the Gemara says, Nida, be a tzaddik and don't be a rasha. And broadly speaking, that means preserve the purity of your neshama. Like the Gemara says, to hate tzaddik, rasha. And the neshama is pure and you have to guard it in its purity, like the Gemara says in, in Nida. So what does it mean to be a tzaddik? It means to guard the purity of the soul. Well, what does that mean? Why is the soul impure? It's impure because of one of three, in three different realms. It's impure because of the clash of this world and that world, which I would say perhaps is a clash of purpose. Which world are we living for? We're living for this world or living for Olam Abba? Right? Our soul wants to live for Olam Abba. It was miserable when it had to come to this world, and our body, well, that's this world, and that's the conflict. On one hand. On the other hand, it's a conflict of identity. Who are we? Are we primarily body or primarily soul? Whose needs are we tending to? Our body or our soul? Well, if we, if we identify as a soul, then we'll try to address those needs. Just like anyone tries to address their own needs. Who doesn't try to eat breakfast? Everyone eats breakfast. Why? Because your body needs food. Well, what about your soul? What about its food? Where is its breakfast? Well, soul. I may have a soul, but that's not me. I have a body and the soul's just there. That's what we assume. That, that's exactly what he's worried about. He says, no, I, I, I'm the holy thing and I, I've been in this box and God created me and it's all, and now you're putting me in this putrid drop? My identity is going to be totally, uh, totally an afterthought. I'm not going to be tended to. And that's part of our, our conflict. And lastly, we have the Yetzirah, which is the foreign God, and that is in direct opposition to God. How so? Well, certainly if the Yetzirah tries to get you to sin, what, what's a sin? A sin is an act governed by a foreign God because God said don't do that. And that's what a sin is. A sin is an act that God says don't do. And Yetzirah says do it. So why would someone do a sin? Because they have a foreign God that supplanted their real God. Their soul is not happy about that because the soul only has one God. Only the real God. And it's disappointing. It starts crying at birth because now there's the Yetzirah. Additionally, one of the reasons why we do mitzvos is to remember God. For example, tzitzis, reisim osam, uzchartem. The Rambam tells us also by uh, the, the mitzvah of shofar, that you blow the shofar to wake people up from their slumber. V'zichru borachem, and remember God. We have a mezuzah affixed to every doorpost. Why? Every time you pass it, 
you remember God. We say the Shema every morning. It's our declaration, pledge of allegiance to God. We were tefillin, we have Shabbos. All, all mitzvahs really remember God. Why don't we remember God instinctively, intuitively? Because the Yetzirah fills all that, fills all that space. He is all the other nonsense are all results of the foreign God contaminating our consciousness and causing us to not place our mind in our priorities to God himself. So, we have, so we're in this world with three conflicts. Says the Talmud, says the instruction given to the soul, be a tzaddik and don't be a rasha. When Chazal, when our sages talk about a tzaddik, it gives such different, such varying definitions of what a tzaddik even is. What is a tzaddik? It's, it's what we're supposed to be, right? Become a tzaddik. Well, what does that mean? So, source number one tells us, it's from the Rambam, that a tzaddik means to do mitzvos. You do mitzvos, you're a tzaddik. Source number two as well says that all the mitzvos are to become a tzaddik. So I would say, perhaps, that, a tzaddik, that doing mitzvos well, that's an act of seeking purification of the soul. And that's, okay, fine. That's, that's what, that's what renders someone a tzaddik. But then the next set of sources tell us that, that a tzaddik is someone who has a portion of the Lama Ba, has a portion of the world to come. And the Gemara says, the Mishnah says, call the Yisraelishim Kaik Lama Ba, Shinemar Va'amechum Tzadikim. Everyone has a portion of the world to come because everyone's a tzaddik. Furthermore, the Gemara says, and there's many sources here, that what's Olam Abba? It's Tzadikim Yoshvim Vatroshem Vatroshem Barasem. Tzadikim sitting with their crowns on the head and having the pleasure of God. Thirdly, Olam Abba is only for Tzadikim. Clearly, the term Tzadik is linked with someone who merits Olam Abba. And thirdly, we find um, in many sources, I selected a few of them, that Tzadik is used by, as someone who fights and resists their Yetzirah. Sheva Yipotzadik Um, like the two Gemaras that are, three Gemaras that are brought here, someone who fights their Yetzirah is someone who's a Tzadik. So the question always bothered me. A Tzadik is, is become a Tzadik. Well, what's a Tzadik? It's mitzvos, it's a lamava, it's fighting Yetzirah. Why does it give such different definitions of what a Tzadik even is? And now it makes a, a whole abundance of sense. The soul the soul's purity was being compromised in multiple ways. It was upset because it was in Olam Abba and now it's brought to Olam Azeh. So we're told, be a tzaddik. Preserve the purity of the soul. What does that mean? Live for Olam Abba. Prioritize Olam Abba. And that's one definition of a tzaddik. And then it's disappointed because it's being identified as a body. And not as a soul. It's been now morphed into this world where now it's, it's not no longer the soul identity of man. So we said, you know, we eat breakfast because we're a body. Where's the breakfast for our soul? You know what a breakfast for your soul is? Doing mitzvahs. Thus, the second definition that we have for what a tzaddik is, that corresponds to the second degradation of the soul. The soul was demoted because now it has a mixed identity. It's, it's a body and a soul together. Well, what is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is breakfast for your soul. 
Thus, doing mitzvahs made someone a tzaddik because doing mitzvahs counteracts the second arena where the soul is demoted, where the soul is unhappy. Why do I have to be with, together with this tipus rucha? And lastly, at birth, the child gets the Yetzirah. And now, the soul once again is demoted, or there's a counter-soul force thrust upon the child, and that's the Yetzirah, the foreign god. Says the Talmud, what does it mean to be a tzaddik? To fight the Yetzirah, to resist the Yetzirah. And it was mind-boggling to me. Like, why do you have three different, different definitions of what a tzaddik even is? Well, now it makes a whole abundance of sense. A tzaddik is someone who preserves the purity of the soul. Well, why is the soul not pure? For multiple reasons. Thus, in multiple reasons that exactly correspond to those, you become a tzaddik. What's a mitzvah? A mitzvah is an act that someone who identifies as a soul will do. Why do we eat breakfast? Because we're hungry. Why do we study Torah? Because we're hungry. The Torah says, the Torah tells us that Man that needs more than just bread. What do you need? Moses Varashem. You need Torah. What, what, what does bread have to do with Torah? The Torah tells us, the Talmud says, Ein lechem ela Torah. It's the Torah, which means when it says bread, it only refers to Torah. What does bread have to do with Torah? Ein mayim ela Torah. The Gemara Tainas. What does this even mean? What this is describing, what someone who is a tzaddik, who preserves the purity of their soul, by identifying as a soul, how they look at the world. What's food? Well, we know food is breakfast, lunch, food, water, air. That's for our body. When someone is a tzaddik, or identifies as a soul, they also need food. They also need tending to the soul. They need bread, they need water. Well, what's that? Torah, 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 Torah. Here, I have a midrash here. From the end of... Dvarim Rava. This is the death of Moshe. It's a very long description. Let's start a step earlier. The major said that Abraham was a Shalit B'Yitzro. Abraham was in total control of his Yitzrah. I.e., the third degradation of the soul, which is the Yitzrah. Abraham totally undid that. So what do we know about Abraham? He studied Torah. How did he study Torah? Well, that's how he did it. He undid it. He undid that last stage of the soul's demotion, and therefore he had Torah innately. What about Moshe? This is a very lengthy description of the death of Moshe. And the Almighty is trying to send angels to go extract the soul of Moshe. It's a very emotional, you read it, it's an amazing midrash. The Almighty sent this angel, and Moshe fought it off, and sent the bad angel, and Moshe fought it off. Eventually, the mighty himself says, I'm going to come and extract Moshe's neshama. The mighty called to the neshama, Moshe's neshama, from his body. Amarla, and he said to it, Biti, my daughter, neshama. I put you into the body of Moshe 120 years, for 120 years. Achshav, now he diakitzechlatzech. Now it's time to come out. Tzii, come out. Al ta'achri. So we learned already that our soul is miserable. What happens when the soul of Moshe now wants to be liberated, right? It's been taken out of the body of Moshe. It was miserable when it went in. It's probably so delighted to come out. What's the response of the soul? Amr lefanov. 
The soul said to, back to God, Rebona Shalolo, Yodat Anisha Ata Elokakal Ruchos Kodesh. I know that you're in charge of all the Ruchos, all the souls, all the Nefashos, all the souls. Nefashachayim, Amesim, you're in charge of all the souls. Vata Barasani, and you created me, Vata Yatsatani, Vata Nasati, Badruf Shal Moshe, Mevazim Shal. I know that you placed me in the soul, in the body of Moshe for 120 years. Vachshav. Yesh Guf Tahar Ba'olam, Yosem Badruf Shal Moshe. Is there a more pure body in the world? So it's invoking both. Ruf and the Olam. Better than Moshe. Shalom near Baruch Shruchma Olam, Vlo Rim of Talea. Lachain Ani Ohevesoso. I like it. Ve'eni Rotsin Latasimeno. I don't want to leave. The body of Moshe is the best place for it. What Moshe, Moshe's greatness was that he made his body such a wonderful domain vessel for his soul that it was even better than where the soul was previously. The soul didn't want to leave. Moshe undid, Moshe was the ultimate tzaddik because he undid everything that the soul had going against it. And indeed, it didn't want to leave. It was happy. And the might tried and eventually it left as well. And the might said, there's a good place for you. And the might just took it out. But this really shows like where where we all start and where we can end. Like Moshe was a total tzaddik. He fulfilled indeed the mitzvah of or the instruction of becoming a tzaddik and becoming a rasha to the total nth degree. And thus we see in direct contrast the soul comes in kicking and screaming but is very happy. Moshe created a, a domicile for the soul that was so wonderful. Who would want to leave? Why would you want to leave it? This is a better place even than where he came from. And the question is, like, okay, what's our path from being, you know, from this midrash to that midrash, from starting off, how do we become a tzaddik and, and perpetuate and ensure the purity of our soul? And obviously there's multiple levels. We see Abraham and Moshe are levels, but there's got to be, you know, to be a tzaddik, what does it mean? It means to be somewhere along this way of waging war to preserve the purity, the purity of the, our soul on these three different realms. And by the way, just a oh, quick takeaway we now know why we do mitzvos. Like this, we have a reason right now in front of us. We do mitzvos to preserve the purity of our soul, because that's what it is, or to tend to the needs of our soul, to identify as a soul, because that's what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is an activity that you only would do because of your soul. That's the, every mitzvah is an activity of the soul. That's what it is. And if you want to identify as a soul, that's what you start behaving like. And why would we fight your Yetzirah? Why, why would you fight your inclination? You, have, you, you, you want something. Why would you say not? Well, because you're fighting for the purity of your, of your soul. Why would you want to live for Lama Ba? Well, that gives your soul vitality. That, that's what it means to become a tzaddik. And thus, if we live by, you know, really all of Torah really can be condensed to these efforts and hope. My hope is that we, now that we understand what life's really about, uh, we take uh, a stab at it and try to be successful in this wonderful lifelong goal of ours.